This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Aaron Olivo. Aaron is an assistant clinical professor of medical psychology at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and the former director of the Columbia Integrative Medicine Program. In addition, she currently maintains a private psychotherapy practice in New York City. With Sounds True, Aaron Olivo has created a new book, Wise Mind Living. Master Your Emotions, Transform Your Life, a book that serves as an owner's manual for working with emotional experience. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Aaron and I spoke about the physiological basis of emotions and their evolutionary value. We also talked about what she calls the cycle of emotion and how emotions come in waves. Finally, we talked about working with our emotional reactivity as parents and how to teach emotional literacy to our children. Here's my conversation with Dr. Aaron Olivo. Aaron, I'm curious to know how your Wise Mind Living program grew out of your work as a clinical psychologist, grew out of your actual work with clients? It did. It, it, um, one of the things that I realized as I was um, practicing year after year was that a lot of people came to me with very general um, complaints of, I'm really stressed out, I just don't feel good in my life. And they didn't really have a language when I sort of really tried to push deeper for what emotions are you feeling or what are you struggling with. They didn't have a language for their emotions to talk about what emotional things were actually causing many of the problems. The other thing that a lot of people come to me for is that they're having a problem with a particular behavior or a relationship problem. And they wouldn't talk a lot about the emotions that might be fueling those things. And so I, I really started thinking, wow, there's not a lot of emotional literacy um, in the world. And, and if you really even look at the way we teach kids about emotions, I don't really feel like we talk a whole lot about teaching kids what their emotions are and how to do something about them when they don't like them. And so I felt like it was an important thing to write an owner's manual, if you will, for, for people's emotions. You know, it's interesting. We're going to talk about the Wise Mind Living program and your suggestions, practices for helping people work with their emotions. And by the time I got to the end of the book, Wise Mind Living, I thought, you know, God, it's not really that hard to work with your emotions. I wonder why it's such a black box, if you will, for so many of us. Why so many of us feel like, where do I even start? Why do you think that is? 
I think one of the reasons is because there's a stigma about even talking about emotions um, in our society. People don't, you know, you, you ask somebody, how do you feel? And people say, fine. Or if they are going to actually endorse something negative, then they usually just say, oh, so stressed out or so busy. And I think of stress as a throwaway term in some ways, like feeling stressed is a very general term, just like fine. And I think that it's because if we actually said, oh, feeling anxious or, oh, I'm feeling sad, that people would be like, oh, I don't really want to talk about that. So I think it starts with just that we are all growing up in a society where emotions are considered in some ways weakness or too much and we don't really think a lot about them or work with them often. So I think that's part of it. It's just really about waking up to it and even just thinking about it at all. Because the minute we do start to pay attention, it isn't all that hard sometimes. Obviously, there are really big emotions that we feel that are much harder to regulate and there are ongoing situations in life that can be very hard to cope with emotionally. But the day-to-day emotions that we all experience and we do all experience emotions all day long, those are, once you start to pay attention to them, much easier to feel in control of, as opposed to feeling like they just are something that happens to us. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start now at the beginning of Emotional Literacy 101, if you will, and help us know what is an emotion. I mean, it might not be as obvious, I think, as we say a lot, you know, about my emotional, this, that, but what actually is an emotion? An emotion is um, a fundamentally a physiological phenomenon. It's something that happens in your body as a response to a trigger either that's internal or external in the world. Um, and that is a complex sort of group of um, hormonal changes, um, electrical changes, cognitive changes, things that all happen in your body in response to what's happening around you. You take in sensory information and it results in responses in your body. And we all have developed emotions. It's, there's an evolutionary advantage to feeling emotions, right? So we've developed emotions to keep us safe in the world. The most obvious, easy one that everyone sort of understands right away is fear, right? If there's something dangerous in my environment, then fear acts as the signal to me that that's the case. And then it automatically sets up um, an action urge that goes with it for that I want to do something to keep myself safe. So fundamentally, it's an evolutionary physiological phenomenon that happens for everyone. What do you think is the importance of understanding the physiological basis? And I ask that because most people, I don't think, think about their emotions physiologically. They think of these weird sort of cloud banks of different forms that take us over. Do you know what I mean? We don't think, oh, this is physiological. No. In fact, I think probably most people think of it more as cognitive, right? When you ask somebody, what do you feel? You often get a thought, not a feeling actually from them. Um, and so you're right. I think people don't think about it as happening in their body. And I think one of the reasons why it's really important to recognize it as a physiological phenomenon is that if you don't manage the physiology of an emotion, that activation that happens in your body, then you, 
you actually can't get to regulating a lot of the, using a lot of the other strategies um, to regulate emotion. Because when we have that physiological arousal, some of our higher level thinking and acting is shut down. Um, so it's really important. I always say to all my patients, one of the very first things that I want you to do when you're feeling any big emotion or you're feeling really stressed out is calm your body down first. Because physiologically, the fight or flight arousal that we feel, like everyone's pretty much heard of that term, right? And we've all experienced it at least a couple times in our lives. You know, it's that thing that happens if you're driving down the street and somebody pulls in front of you that you're not expecting and, and you have to slam on the brakes or swerve out of the way and then you notice your body. Your heart starts racing, you're probably breathing fast, your temperature might rise like you feel hotter. There are also a lot of things happening internally for you in that moment. Your muscles are getting tense. Your blood pressure is going up. Your platelets um, are being, uh, more platelets are being produced. And the stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline are being released. And so all of that is happening. And let me just say, that all happens in other less extreme emotional responses too, at maybe a lower level, but that's all happening there too. And when that all happens, what happens in your brain is that your brain shuts down the ability to think very flexibly and very abstractly. Because in those moments, all that your body is doing is trying to get you ready to be able to do one of two things, fight or get away from the danger. And it, your body doesn't need you to be able to sort of solve complex math problems or think abstractly about something. It just wants you focused on the danger and focused on how to keep yourself safe. And so we get very small-minded in a sense of, of what we're thinking and hypervigilant for danger. So if we don't calm all that down, then we can't use our brain to then help us regulate emotion, to really evaluate the situation, to problem solve in a really sort of creative way. And so we really have to do something about our body first. Now, you mentioned that there are two parts of the brain that are important to understand in terms of working with emotions. In the Wise Mind Living program, you talk about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. So maybe you could help our listeners understand those two parts of the brain and why it's so important to understand how they both function. Right. Yes. The, the the brain process that happens in emotion is incredibly complex. And so I am absolutely boiling it down to the, the bare bones basics of what it is that might be helpful to understand about this. So I just want to say that first, that this, there's a whole lot more that happens than just this. But if you want to really break it down to the, its simplest form, essentially we have an alarm system, the amygdala, and the brakes, and that's the prefrontal cortex. So something happens, we use all the sensory information coming in from the external world, something we see dangerous, and it's, it actually rings the alarm bell of the amygdala. So the amygdala is what starts off the process of this fight or flight response and gets you moving for safety. The prefrontal cortex, which is part of the neocortex, part of the newer part of your brain, that has evolved as humans have evolved, um, is the part where you actually can stop and think through, hold on, 
what is this really? Is it as dangerous as it seems? And so that then can put on the brakes of that alarm bell that's being rung whenever you've experienced something as activating or stressing. Now, this makes sense to me in terms of working with fear, but in your Wise Mind Living program, you list eight different big buckets of emotional experience, including love and happiness. And so would I, would I ever want to be putting the brakes on love and happiness? Yes, actually you would, because sometimes... I would? I would? Yeah. I, I'm, not sure I'm, I'm not sure I'm with you here, so help me understand yeah, that. Let me tell you. So I, so no, really, I think that sometimes, I mean, certainly an easy example of this is when you are loving something or someone that's not loving you back, then that's definitely something that we want to put the brakes on. But even just excitement and happiness, you know, sometimes it actually can be more activating and cause us to not think very clearly about the choices we're making. You know, I probably every person listening has um, sort of in a moment found themselves carried away by either love or happiness and maybe made some choices that if they had made those choices in a calmer moment, they might have made a different choice, right? And so while we certainly want to try as much as possible to bring as much love and happiness into our lives as we can, there is at an extreme level, which, you know, sort of this emotion mind way of being where it can really be driving the train and taking me to a place that isn't all that helpful for me or wise for me that I do want to make, make sure I'm on top of. Um, but the same strategies that we can also use to decrease emotions, we can also use to increase them. And that we can also use to say, oh, I want more of that. So I'm going to really focus in on that. So one of the strategies I talk about in the book, um, it's a behavioral strategy for changing emotion, is opposite action. So I mentioned before that a lot of the, um, the physiological aspect of what happens in emotion is hardwired and creates an action urge. It creates something that you want to do, that the emotion makes you want to do. So with fear, it's to... Um, it's to hide or avoid something that you're fearing. And um, if we do the thing that our body tells us to do, it actually makes the emotion bigger um, because your body wants you to listen. It thinks, oh, I, you know, this emotion is a warning system for something. I should listen to my emotions. And so when you engage in that behavior, it will increase the behavior. When I do the opposite of what my body is telling me to do, what my urge is in the moment, it actually then decreases the emotion. So if I approach something that once I've really thought it through isn't all that dangerous, like going in the elevator to the 40th floor, I won't actually have any major consequences for doing it. And once I've approached that dangerous thing, my, my anxiety and fear should come down. And it almost always does. So Opposite action works in that way, but you can also think, oh, well, then that means that if I want to feel something more, I can just engage in the urge that I have. So the urge that goes along with love and happiness is usually that you want more of it or that you want to approach it more, or that you want to, you want to um, think about it more, right? Like we've all had that moment when we were teenagers probably where we wrote the guy's name over and over that we were madly in love with that moment, right? That's enhancing the feeling of love. And so 
for instance, one of the sort of things that I ask people to do, my patients to do on a regular basis, especially when they're having some relationship conflict, for instance, is to stop and remind themselves why they love the person that they're in this relationship with. And I ask people to every night write down three things that you love about that person. That increases the feeling of love that we have. So that's regulating love in moments where maybe it's I'm having a hard time connecting to it. So regulating emotion is really, it's, it's meant to be regulating emotion. It's, I can upregulate or downregulate because once I really start thinking about what I'm feeling and making wise choices about what I'm doing, I can make a choice about increasing it or decreasing it. I'm in control of my emotions. Now, what about this idea that controlling our emotions, I'm in charge of my emotions, is a little upside down in that we want the emotions themselves to tell us, bring us the message that they have some intelligence. And we don't want to necessarily be rigging the system to where we want it to go, but we want these emotions themselves to bring their communication, whatever it might be. I'm curious what you think about that. I, I'm not, I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. I do, I believe strongly in the idea that our emotions, that there's wisdom in our emotions and that they are important communicators. But as I want to be a discerning listener or viewer of the information around me, right? I don't want to just take every bit of news and information around me as absolute truth. And I really want to investigate it and figure out, does this help me or does this hurt me? Do I, do I really believe this or is there more evidence to the contrary? So I, I want to do that with my emotions just like any other bit of information. But I do believe that it is important to listen. So I'm going to listen and pay attention. And that's where mindfulness really comes into um, all of the Wise Mind Living strategies. It's, I have to be more mindful and aware of exactly what my body is telling me or what my emotions are telling me. But then I get to sort of use another layer of investigation to decide what I think about that and what I feel about that and what I want to do with that. And that's where I have control that I'm not at the whim of my emotions. Just because it's being communicated to me doesn't always mean it's the truth. You know, and I think a lot of people have heard that slogan of feelings are not facts. And I think that that's really important to keep in mind. Yes, sometimes they are important bits of information, but they're not always the truth or they're not always the last word on something. Now, you talked about emotions as having value and understanding them from an evolutionary perspective. And I thought it might be interesting to explore some of the other emotions besides fear. You talked about fear, but let's take something like sadness. There's an evolutionary value to something like sadness. What could that be? Absolutely. The evolutionary advantage to feeling sad is that you will more likely not take for granted the things that you have because you know you will feel sad if you lose them. And so it helps us protect what we have. It helps us value what we have um, and cherish those things. And I think that's a really important evolutionary concept because if you think about how being connected and close in a tribe, um, valuing the resources that I have, not just people but resources too, all of those things are, are really important to survival. And so I want to 
I want to value things. And so that's just the flip side of valuing something and feeling it's very important is that we have the chance of feeling a sense of loss or sadness when it's not there. Okay. I think this line of questioning is really interesting to me. So let's keep going with some of these other emotions. What about the evolutionary value of shame? Shame. Yeah. Shame is a big one that a lot of my patients ask, like, why in the world do I feel so unworthy or shameful? And that can't, that can't be helpful. And I think that what happens is it often isn't helpful because we, we all experience a lot of unjustified shame. But um, the way I actually do distinguish between what's justified and unjustified is to use the evolutionary purpose of shame um, and, and check against that. So the evolutionary purpose of shame is that if I engage in any behaviors that might get me thrown out of the tribe, I'm going to really have a hard time surviving. So I will feel the, the emotion of shame as a way of trying to ward against engaging in those behaviors or ways of being that might actually get me thrown out of the tribe. So I ask a lot of my patients sometimes, well, so you're feeling intense shame over this, but do you, you know, your tribe, your group, it, who really is going to, to throw you out or really reject you for this thing? Do you think you really will get rejected? And when we really start to ask ourselves those questions, Sometimes just even re realizing that can minimize the amount of shame that we feel when we realize it's probably not so justified. Okay, and the evolutionary value of jealousy. That one I think is pretty obvious, right? So I have something and I need to protect it because I don't want you to take it. Um, and that goes back to resources as well. And so I think that that also has an evolutionary advantage because it keeps the resources helping me and not, um, and not someone else. Okay, we're almost through the list here, but I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Disgust. Okay. Disgust. So disgust, I think, started really from a very biological place, right? It has clear biological roots that um, we do not want to um, go anywhere near things that are dangerous for us, and so we feel disgust. So something that's, um, you know, sort of rotten food, think the sort of immediate revulsion we get from something like that. So I think it really probably started more as a biological experience of disgust. But now, of course, as we've evolved as social animals, we can feel disgusted by lots of things and people. And again, it's, it, you know, we experience it, though, at, an, at its extreme, disgust feels like it's dangerous. And if we really stop and think, like, well, hold on a second, is that, I don't like that guy, but is he really dangerous? Like, is it really that bad? And then that can help us reduce our feelings of disgust or dislike sometimes when we realize that. Now, even I, I think, might have some insight into the evolutionary value of love as being directly related to sex and procreation. But exactly. what's, what's a little harder for me to understand is the evolutionary value of happiness. When we feel happy, we do more of whatever it is that makes us happy. Um, and so it's, it's a, an emotion that helps us stay motivated and keep working towards things or keep doing things that feel good or get us good things. So that's also obviously a, a helpful thing for gathering resources and staying alive. Um, and so that's, I think, why we feel happiness. And then the last one on your list of eight emotional categories, if you will, of experience is anger. Yes. 
also about protecting our resources, which is what most of these evolutionary um, sort of reasons are, right? So if a goal of mine is being blocked or someone is actively trying to hurt me, then that's going to trigger anger. Um, and that will then motivate me to protect myself and protect what's mine. Um, and so justified anger um, is when a, the situation is truly about someone blocking something that's important to you or actively hurting you. But where that one goes wrong and isn't sometimes justified is that we feel intensely angry as if someone was really out to get us or trying to hurt us, but we have to step back and say, well, wait, were they really trying to hurt me? Um, or do I just not like what they were doing? And so that's one of the ways to also regulate emotion by thinking about that sort of justification based on evolutionary standards. So a lot of times, I think, when people start identifying, I'm having some kind of emotional experience right now, they don't necessarily know how to label that emotional experience. Do you think it's important that we start being able in this conversation we're having here, Emotional Literacy 101, to be emotionally literate at the beginning stages even? Do we need to know which of these emotions we're feeling at any given time? Absolutely. There's research that actually shows that the, the simple act of labeling the emotion reduces the physiological impact of an emotion on your body. So just labeling it, just saying, I feel sad, reduces the physical activation of feeling sad or fear or anger, whatever it might be. So that on the sort of very physical level is clearly very important. But I also think that, you know, what I'm going to do um, if I'm feeling fearful is going to be very different than what I'm going to do if I'm feeling angry. And sometimes we can get mixed up about which it is, and then we, take, we can take an action or problem solve it, and we're going down the wrong path. So I think it's important to step back and, and truly identify what we're feeling for that reason, too. I wonder if you could give an example of how fear and anger sometimes get confused and how somebody can sort that out. Um, yeah, I think, let me try to think of an example. I don't have one at the top of my head right now. Um, you know, I do think that a lot of times in, in work settings, this comes up where someone might feel as if, um, people are blocking their goals, but what they're really feeling, and, and so they get angry, but what they're really feeling is, I'm afraid I'm not doing this well enough. Um, it's that example of where you, you, you kind of look outward and blame someone else for something that's not going right. And you're not really taking into consideration that you're really fearful about your ability to do this. Or even, and this would also be another, sort of could go into the example of feeling a sense of shame over something, of if I'm not, I'm not doing well enough at something. And so I look for, it must be that person's fault. Um, and so if I look for a solution to the anger I feel at this other person, then I'm not ever really going to get to the underlying emotion of, yeah, actually, I feel bad about this and I need to do better at this job or I need to ask for help with this job as opposed to looking for how is that other person hurting me. I think that's a great example. And what it brings up for me is could the person in that experience be feeling fear, anger, and shame, all three, and they're all kind of mixed together and woven in? Absolutely, because we can feel lots of things all at once. It's really helpful to 
back up and slow it all down and realize that it it goes through these cycles of emotion, but you can go through a cycle in like a millisecond and then be on to the next emotion that that one triggered. So um, in the book, I break down the cycle of emotion into these component parts. So every emotion has the same components. There's something that triggers it. There's an interpretation you make about it, the story you tell yourself about what's happening, what you think and, and believe about it. There's a physiological change. There's an action urge. There's an action that you usually take. Um, and then there's an after effect. So what, whatever it is that you did or thought will then lead you to another way of thinking or feeling. And that starts a whole nother cycle. So the first cycle going around could be, I feel shame over, I don't think I did a good job at something. And then what I think is, oh God, this is going to be really horrible. If anyone knows this, that's, I've got to get this better. I've got, I'm going to lose my job if I don't do this well. And then that leads me to seeking out where else I can put blame, maybe even, right? And the action I take might be to look for, scan the environment for who else didn't do their job. And then the after effect would be that now I feel angry because now I see somebody else didn't do everything they were supposed to do. And instead of then staying with the feeling of I didn't do what I was supposed to do, I'm going to focus on that. And then I'm going to go around that cycle again, this time with that angry feeling. And then that might take me to an action of lashing out at that person. Um, and then that can create the after effects of now I'm in a, a fight with someone and I have to go around the cycle again and again. And we can really, this is how we go from an emotion, which is a discrete sort of phenomenon that happens over the course of usually just a couple of minutes, all the way to a mood, which we know could last for weeks at times. Um, and that's that spiral of emotion. And I think that the key is to step back and try to slow it all down, identify what are the various emotions I'm feeling and can I break them down into their component parts so I can see what's happening? Because the great news about each of those components is that they each offer an opportunity to do something different. So I can intervene on any one of those components I just mentioned. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, so I want to go deeper into this cycle of an emotion. And you started by saying there's a trigger, and I get that. And then the next thing you said was an interpretation followed by a physiological change. And what I'm curious about is, might the physiological change come directly after the trigger, even before you've interpreted it? Or is the interpretation necessary before our body starts to show this change 
way of being. Right. You're asking a question that people have devoted their entire um, careers to trying to answer. I just want you to give me the answer. I don't really want to put that much time into it. But anyway, I'm just oh, kidding right. here. So, <laughs> right, right. So there's, there's no right or wrong answer to that. So and I actually think from the perspective of helping my patients regulate emotion, it doesn't matter which you notice first or which comes first necessarily. Um, I, I believe that the answer probably lies somewhere with the, with, I believe the answer lies somewhere in the middle of sometimes you think first and feel it in your body second, and sometimes it's the opposite. But there are lots of different theories on this. The cognitive model of emotion um, states that you really have a thought first. And I think for the most part, a lot of my patients know about what they're thinking even better than knowing what their body's doing sometimes. So that's part of why I usually put it first. But like I said earlier, when you're actually going to try to intervene, I think it's better to start with your body anyway. So, so I don't, sorry, but that's sort of a non-answer of, I don't know which comes first, but I really don't think it matters. I think we have to do something about all of it. Okay. So let's talk about intervening in this cycle of emotion. So I'm triggered by something. I, you know, I could uh, imagine all kinds of things. Let's, I'll just use a, an anger trigger because that's so obvious for me. And I'm starting to run a story about it. My body's changing. I'm getting all, you know, hot inside, red. My fists are filling with, you know, the desire to punch someone, that kind of thing. I, I get it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you've talked about how you teach your patients to calm their body right out of the gate. Let's talk about that. How do I calm myself at this point? So the first thing is to identify that it's happening. The next thing would be to say, and now I'm going to try to slow down my breathing. I'm going to try to reverse that physiological effect that happens pretty universally for most emotions. My heart rate is probably increased, even if I don't know it right now. My breathing is more shallow and rapid, and I'm going to try to do the reverse of both of those things. And so one of the best ways to do that is to just breathe more slowly. All of the physiological change that's happening is happening in your autonomic nervous system, which that word autonomic sounds like automatic um, because it all is automatic. But the one thing we do have control over in our autonomic nervous system is our breath. And it in turn creates a cascade of events that happens that re reduces or minimizes all of the other activation that's happening. So to stop and take 10 slow, little bit deeper breaths. The key here is not to hyperventilate though, which some people, when they hear me say, take sleep, you know, deep, slow breaths, they start really hyperventilating, like trying to breathe in all the air in the room kind of thing. And that actually activates us. So it's take a breath in through your nostril and out through your mouth. So in through the nostrils, out through the mouth, and try to extend the exhale. You want to try maybe to count to maybe a beat of five, not too fast, and see if you can do that just even 10 breaths. And then the other thing you can do while doing that is try to decrease the tension in your body. If you tune into it, you'll probably notice your shoulders are up by your ears, and like you said, your, your fists get clenched. And so if you can try to, with your exhale, re reduce the tension that you're holding in your body, that also helps. And so I ask people to, to just do that um, 
quickly before they then try to engage in thinking it through. And that would be the next place that I might go, which would be to ask them to challenge the story they're telling or challenge some of their um, interpretations. And how do I do that? My interpretation is basically pretty quickly, I'm going to kill this person. I mean, not really, but I'm starting to have those kinds of thoughts. I'm so mad in this anger response. So, right. So I would ask first about the interpretations. Well, what do you think this means about you? What do you think this means about the other person? What do you think this means about the world? Because what's making you angry isn't just, I want to kill them, right? There's some other thing you're telling yourself about this. It's probably a, they shouldn't have done this. Um, it isn't fair that they've done this. Um, it's, um, right, something like that. Yep, or yep. Um, you're probably discount. There, there are some typical ways that people think when they're very activated. And they tend to be that they are either amplifying or catastrophizing the situation or they're doing these very non-accepting, it should be this way, it shouldn't be that way, you know, that really when we step back from it, we can realize, okay, maybe my rules here aren't quite as solid or I don't have the right to be making all these rules. Um, and so we can start to look and see if we're engaging in any of these more distorted, extreme ways of thinking, um, which many of us are. And in the book, I list, um, you, you know, a bunch of these sort of patterns of negative thinking that people fall into. And almost always when I share it with people and I ask them to take a look, they come back after the first time and say, oh my God, I do every single one of them. Does this mean I'm crazy? And I say, no, it means you're human because we all do every single one of these things when we're um, feeling something in a big way. So, um, but the minute you start to identify yourself engaging in one of these kinds of distorted thinkings, black, black and white thinking or jumping to conclusions or catastrophizing, the minute you even recognize it, that in and of itself sometimes diffuses it and you start thinking differently right then and there. I'm wondering, just like you have this slow breathing technique that you suggest to people, is there some question or a couple of questions I could ask myself on the spot, no matter what emotion I'm feeling, that would help me interrupt this interpretation tendency I have to turn it into a bigger deal than it is? Well, I think the one question I ask, if I was going to boil it down to one question, it would be, um, is there another way of thinking about this? And then maybe the second question is, and am I falling into any of the common traps? And once you start to pay attention to this, you know, people, like I said, come back and say, I do all of them. They, they probably do do all of them, but they probably have one or two that they customarily use as a pattern. Um, so people, a lot of my patients um, are catastrophizers. So they make things into, you know, from I messed up on this one project to um, and I'm going to lose my job and I'm going to be homeless. That's an example of catastrophic thinking or overgeneralizing it in the moment. And so I think once you start to know what your go-to ways of distorting are, you can ask yourself if you're doing that. Now, you talked about this cycle of emotion and how emotions come in waves. And I'm curious, is there any length of time that you think emotions were designed to last versus 
potentially the amount of time we spend in an emotional state. Yeah, I think the research says that most emotions as physiological phenomenon rise and fall within two to three minutes. But if you ask people their experience of emotions, almost everyone will say to you, no, no, emotions must last longer than that. But actually, I think that what happens is, as I described before, that we we are re-triggering our emotions with what we're thinking and doing. And so it might have risen and fallen in that two minutes if we stayed out of it. But of course we don't. We're sort of just, we're so involved in this experience of the emotion and thinking and doing in response to it that we keep the emotion going. And when you keep an emotion going long enough, that's when it actually reaches the level of where we say, now you're in a, a bad mood or a sad mood or an anxious mood. Um, and so then moods last days and weeks. Now I'm curious about something like grief. Would you say grief is a, a mood that we're continuing to trigger in some way? Or how do you understand it? I mean, I think of someone who's lost somebody very dear to them and potentially is in a grief state. Granted, it's not all the time, but it's there for, you know, it could be a year or two years. Absolutely. Um, Yes. So I think of grief as a complex interplay of a bunch of different emotions. And so I guess I would categorize it more in that um, mood category than a specific emotion. Um, The predominant emotion in grief, of course, is often sadness, a a real sense of loss um, and a longing for something that you've lost. Um, But there's also part of grief is um, anger and guilt and shame can be a part of the process of grief, um, fear. So really, all of the emotions are wrapped up in it, and it is a then cycle of experiencing those emotions um, that can last a long time. Now, you talk in Wise Mind Living that a, a wise mind approach is not about getting rid of emotional experience in any way. And at the same time, I could imagine someone listening who's saying, well, I'm intervening in this cycle so that I can, you know, quote unquote, not stay in the emotion that long. You know, I'm I'm taking this intervention. How do we know the right amount of time to spend in an emotion? I don't think there is a right amount of time. So I don't think we can know. I think that it's it depends on the situation and it depends on how you're feeling in the moment. It depends on your capacity to tolerate an emotion um, and how big it feels and how destructive it feels. So I think that it's, it's about sort of doing what we can when we, when we recognize that we don't want to feel what we're feeling, that it's, that it's intense and distressing and we really want to do something to downregulate it, then we need to try to work on a change-oriented strategy for changing how we feel. But we can't change everything that we feel, and the rest that's left over, we have to try to practice acceptance with, because acceptance is another way of decreasing the suffering we experience from that negative emotion. So I talk with my patients, and this comes from dialectical behavior therapy, this concept of balancing Um, the acceptance strategies we use with the change strategies that we use. And it it really is sort of finding that balance, going back and forth from, you know, right now I really, there's not much I feel I can do to change this or change the way I feel. So how can I practice acceptance 
so that I'm not fighting with it or struggling with it and so that I can have it be something I can tolerate a little better. But just acknowledging that it's still going to be here. I'm still going to feel this negative feeling. And then other times where we feel, I'm ready to really change this. I'm ready to approach this in some way where I want to challenge the way I'm thinking. I want to challenge the way I'm choosing to to behave or respond to this. And I want to actively do something, even if it's distraction, even if it is just, I want to think about something completely different right now because I don't want to feel this anymore. I want to be out of this emotion for right now at least. You know, this combination of approaching things in terms of, I want to change it, or I just need to accept it. That seems like such a profound idea to me, and and one actually that I don't hear that many people talk about, how to bring together both an attitude of, I'm going to accept this, and gosh darn it, I'm going to change it. So I'm wondering, how do you help your patients tune into what's needed in any given moment? Acceptance, or I'm going to change it? I think that um, it begins with always acceptance. So I try, to, I try to ask my patients, I try to think about acceptance as I'm going to be, I'm going to acknowledge what I feel. So I'm going to just sit here and feel what I feel. So then I know what to do with it. And then at that point, I can make a decision as to whether or not I'm ready to start to move into a change strategy or I need to stick with tolerating this distress and trying to cope with it and trying to practice acceptance. But so I I really am asking my patients and the readers of the book to start by using an acceptance strategy, which is mindfulness, essentially, awareness and acknowledgement of what I'm feeling in this moment. And from there, I'll then decide what to do with it. Well, that's interesting that you're starting with acceptance in each situation. I think that's really interesting. Now, you mentioned that you teach your patients mindfulness as a beginning acceptance strategy. And in the book, Wise Mind Living, you talk about three different types of mindfulness practice. And I thought this was useful, formal practice, informal practice, and also living with mindful awareness. And I wonder if you could just briefly talk to us about each of these three different practices and how you teach people to work with these three different approaches? Sure. The formal practice is what we hear so much when we you know, hear a lot about mindfulness these days. We hear about mindfulness meditation. So formal practice is making the decision that you'd like to designate some time in your life for sitting still and, um, and being mindful. Um, and so that's formal meditation practice that I teach my patients to use in their life. Um, Informal meditation practice is finding moments when you're going to be doing something else that you ordinarily do and you're going to designate that activity as something that you're going to practice mindfulness while doing it. So it would be, I'm going to take a shower this morning um, and I ordinarily do that without mindful attention. In fact, I use that often to make my lists of all the things I have to do today. But instead, I'm going to be present and one-minded in the way I'm going to take this shower and I'm going to bring mindfulness to this. So I'm going to be mindfully present with the act of just taking a shower. And then um, living mindfully is 
that I haven't really designated it as an exercise, this is the moment I'm going to do informal mindfulness practice. It's just really trying to infuse that into everything that you're doing in your life. That's really sort of living, fully participating and living um, fully awake and aware. And that's, I think, the goal that we can all set for ourselves and, and hard to live sometimes. And it's what the other two kinds of mindfulness practice help us achieve when we do designate the time and, and form the intention to really practice, it helps us then live more mindfully also. Now, Erin, I know that in addition to your work as a clinical psychologist, you're a parent of a four-year-old son. And I'd be curious to know if you could take us through an example of wise mind living in parenting. And what I mean by that is sometime with your son, and I can imagine you have many instances to draw on, where you felt an emotion come over you that was distressing of some kind, difficult, and how you were able to employ the wise mind living approach to emotions or the challenges you faced in employing it. Yeah, I think there's nothing more than relationships in general that are more activating and triggering for emotion, right? If we all could go sit in a room by ourselves all day long, we would have far fewer emotions than we have when we're out interacting with other people. And then on top of that, there's very few relationships that can be more activating than having a relationship with a child, especially a very young child who doesn't have a lot of emotional control yet. So I think absolutely every day I use wise mind living strategies um, when I'm parenting. And so the first thing that popped into my mind when you asked this question was that any time that my son is experiencing a really big emotion, so he's, you know, whether it's full on tantrum or it's just some very um, sort of irrational moment on his part of, you know, but I, but I really want to do this first. This is my plan and I don't want to do your plan or something like that, that that's triggering for me. It's really hard to be in the presence of another person having a big emotion mind storm because instantly we're drawn into a storm of our own usually. And so that's when I use these strategies the most probably with him is that I try to first calm my body because if I'm activated and tense and you know, ready to jump, then that's not going to help the situation. And he picks up on it energetically, right? That's either that it reinforces it because now, oh, I got to rise out of her, so I'm going to keep going with this, or it just makes the whole thing bigger and messier. And then I really try to think through what's, what's happening in front of me and what am I feeling? What interpretations am I making? Is, is that an assumption that's right or wrong? And how could I look at this whole situation differently? And usually that comes in relationships in a version of how do I try to understand the emotion I'm seeing of the person in front of me right now? How do I not just be reactive to that emotion, but really try to be responsive and allowing and accepting and acknowledging of what's going on in front of me? Because a lot of times what's most activating is I want this person to be doing something different. And that's, you know, that's pure change oriented of this is not okay. What's happening in the world is not okay. And I have to back up, allow it to be what it is first 
before I can start to work on how do I then work on changing it. So that's how I would say I use Wise Mind Living Strategies with him really, I don't know, a hundred times a day, I'm sure. And I'm curious, I imagine out of those hundred times a day, there are times when you don't employ the Wise Mind Living Strategies as well as you'd like and potentially even get upset or you know, act in some way. And later you think, gosh, you know, I can't believe I got so mad. At least I know I've had that experience, especially with young kids when I haven't done a lot of babysitting for nephews and nieces, but I've done a little and I'm like, oh my Mm -hmm. God, I can't believe I was able to get to that point. You know, that this little kid brought me to this point of, uh, of, you know, being so agitated. I can't believe it. So I'm curious, after you don't use the wise mind living practices as successfully as you wish you had on the spot, what happens then? How do you relate to yourself then in those moments? Well, I mean, I try to relate to myself with compassion then, right? That I'm human and that they, these little people can get us from zero to a hundred in, you know, no time flat. And that, you know, yeah, I teach this all day long, but of course I'm not perfect at using it all the time. Nobody is. And so I try to have compassion for myself around that because if I, if I don't, if instead I start beating myself up and telling myself that, oh, you're a horrible mother and how could you do that? then I'm just starting a whole nother emotion mind cycle. And that's not helpful. And it's certainly not going to make me a better mother. So really, I try to just take sort of what I describe in the book as a little self-compassion break. I'm like, wow, yeah, that wasn't good. <laughs> that, was, that was really not me at my best. God, I, I am going to try to do better, but I'm, I'm going to forgive myself for that in this moment. What did I learn from that? What am I going to do differently next time? And try to have that compassion for myself around it. Um, And I'm pretty successful with that most of the time, I have to say. So that's good. Um, But then, of course, there's other times where we just have to feel bad about it. And then maybe actually make a repair if it was really bad, right? Like, I'm sorry that I yelled at you. I was really, my, my kid knows the terms emotion, mind, and wise mind. Like, I was really an emotion mind, and I'm sorry that I did that. And that's sometimes the best we can do. And then we just try to do better the next time. Now, we started our conversation by talking about how is it that in our culture today, most people still find it so difficult just to get to a basic level of working with their emotions in a skillful way. And you mentioned that you thought part of the reason had to do with that as children, we weren't taught how to work skillfully and successfully with our emotions. So I'm curious how you're approaching raising your four-year-old son such that hopefully he'll have a different type of training around working with emotions. I am, um, I'm already teaching him mindfulness. Um, so that's the, I would say the foundation of it is. Can you say that? How do you teach a four-year-old mindfulness? So um, we, read, we read some books about mindfulness, um, and we also have made um, what we call a mind jar. So we have a, a little, it's a bottle actually, um, filled with water and glittery glue and sprinkles, uh, glitter sprinkles, and he shakes it up and watches the glitter fall. And we've had a conversation about how this is the way our thoughts and emotions can be sometimes too. And when we get really angry or really upset about something, we can take a few moments and let them all settle, just like the glitter is settling in this bottle of yours. 
And so he actually has gotten, he loves it. And we, we try to follow our breath as we wait for the glitter to settle to the bottom. It's kind of like a snow globe in a sense, you know, if you can picture it. And he, he likes it every once in a while. He'll actually say to me, if he's really upset about something, I think I need my mind jar. And he'll go and shake it up and sit and try to take a few mindful breaths and watch while the glitter settles. And so that's the beginning of him understanding a couple of things. One, that he actually has a choice about feeling different and that he can do something about it. Um, and also that he can settle his body. Um, and so he, he loves it. Kids really do like it. We've, I've also gone into his nursery school class and taught the whole class about this. And we talked about making mind jars and all the kids thought it was really cool. They get it that they feel things in a big way that we just need to give them tools to learn how to do something about it. So, and, and also to ask for help. The other thing that I've taught my son is that he can ask me for help in calming down anytime he wants. Um, so often instead of giving a time out, um, he'll often, you know, actually ask, can we have a time out so that you can help me calm down? I need help. Um, and I think that that's important. You know, if we teach that as a, at a young age, he'll be able to regulate as he's growing. And then when your son comes to you and says, I need help right now, what do you two do together? What do you do at that point? We either take deep breaths and we try to breathe slowly, or um, he loves to sing. And so we sing a song. So we have a couple of go-to songs. Um, depending on his mood, he usually requests, he makes requests, and we sing a song together. Mm-hmm. Which and, it, and usually physical closeness, right? That um, there's something really amazing in calming us about having physical contact. And so usually he needs a hug and we sing a song at the same time. Okay, Erin, I just have two more questions for you. One is that when I was reading Wise Mind Living, I got to this very interesting point towards the back of the book where you offer this tip that people can use when they're totally overwhelmed, and you call it practicing the dive reflex. And I'd never heard anyone introduce this technique before for when you're feeling really overwhelmed, and I want our listeners to hear it. So can you tell us what the dive reflex is? Sure. The dive reflex is a physiological reflex that we have. Like think, you know, doctor hits your knee and your leg goes up. That's a reflex. Well, we also have a reflex that if we dive into cool water, our body senses that at the level of our, at the place on our forehead and face, that cool, wet on our face and prepares your body to be underwater. So it slows down your heart rate and need for oxygen basically. And so that is what we want to do when we want to slow down the reactivity of our autonomic nervous system. And so we can mimic that dive reflex without having to dive into cold water um, by actually putting something cold and wet on our forehead and holding our breath for like 30 seconds, 15 seconds. Um, And I ask all of my patients to do it. We also use sometimes um, uh, an ice pack. So I have some of my patients who are um, having really struggling with panic attacks or a lot of anxiety. They'll actually carry an ice pack, one of those ones that you can just um, break and it gets cold. They'll carry them in their bag um, with them and go into a bathroom if they need to and put it on their forehead, hold their breath for a few seconds and, and try to do the breathing exercise. So it's a really helpful sort of to jumpstart that 
um, that relaxation response, it's a helpful strategy for using. I was imagining, you know, here I am, I'm talking to my partner at night, and let's say I'm getting agitated about something in the conversation, just reaching over into the freezer, grabbing an ice pack and putting it on my head and saying, just give me 30 seconds. Absolutely. Or the peas, right? Like I have some patients who use the peas from their freezer too. But you know, it's, it, I have patients who actually their partners have learned that it's helpful. So they'll just, they're having a fight and they'll, their partner will just walk into the freezer and get the peas out and hand them to them and say, <laughs> let's take a moment. So it's a great strategy. Um, it seems, maybe seems a little silly at times, but it really does work. And I just have one final question for you, Erin. I'm curious to know what your underlying motivation is, if you will, for putting out the book Wise Mind Living and for the teaching work you're doing? What's motivating you? It's hmm, a good question. You know, I love what I do. I feel like I'm teaching my patients every day. I really feel like I am a teacher more than even being a therapist. I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm educating people about all this stuff that I put in the book um, every day. And I just felt like on the one hand, it, writing the book means that I can reach a larger, a larger audience. But the other thing is that I don't think everybody needs to be in therapy to get these skills. I think that they really are life skills that everyone can use. And so instead of having to go to therapy to get them, I feel like they should be available to people. And that's, that's the other motivation for writing the book. Um, is to give that to people who don't need to go to therapy but really want to learn this stuff. I've been talking with Dr. Erin Olivo. She's the author of a new book, Wise Mind Living, Master Your Emotions, Transform Your Life. With Sounds True, she's also created two audio programs. One's called Living in Wise Mind, and the other is an audio on Free Yourself from Anxiety, a mind-body prescription. Aaron, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing all of your wisdom. And, you know, I really loved... Uh, there's one more thing I got from the program. Actually, I'm going to end with this note. You can make a comment on it. In the book, you talked about noticing the small things that bring us happiness as a way to increase our happiness. And you use the example of when the elevator is right there. I thought, well, this is a great New York example when you press the button and the elevator's right there and it makes you happy. But I've been starting to notice here at Sounds True, we have an elevator just from one floor to the second floor, and it's only really for handicapped use and stuff like that. But I notice almost every time I press the button, the elevator's there. And now I'm, I'm happy every day that I get in the elevator <laughs> as, a, as a result of this. I'm increasing my happiness. And I'd be curious if you could share here, just as we end, one final way that you notice happiness in your days and by noticing expand that feeling of happiness that you have I would say that another way that I um, when I think to do it because I have to remind myself to do it too but whenever I'm walking around New York um, you know it's a great it get, you get a great feeling from just smiling at people and they smile most people smile back and that's a moment of happiness of just that connection and a, and a shared smile and so I encourage a lot of my patients to try to do that. Um, just smile at somebody. Instead of just having a blank face when you get your coffee in the morning, give them a real smile. And you almost always get one back. Okay, well, you can't see it because, of course, we're in different locations. But I'm smiling at you now. <laughs> I'm smiling back. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Tammy. Thank you. Soundstreet.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>